Do you know how many people in the world identify as Christian? Throw out some numbers. At least three. One. <laughs> Two billion. 2.3 billion people on the planet Earth currently identify as Christian. You know, uh, the church is our mother, and through the church, God has adopted many sons and daughters. Uh, we have a very large family, but I want to ask, do you know how much of our family worldwide experience high to extreme forms of persecution? Little high. One in 12. So 215 million people who identify as Christian experience high to extreme persecution. On Easter, we lamented that Christians in Sri Lanka were attacked, and it's a painful reminder that for the global church, that was just an ordinary day. Uh, the church has faced persecution since its inception. We see this through the book of Acts. We have records of it throughout history. Now, though, some scholars are saying that the history of Christian persecution is heavily exaggerated. But as Stephen Williams wrote, even allowing a margin for invention, what remains is terrible enough. We live in an age which has experienced similar things and know how unsound is that civilized smile of incredulity at such bad report. Things can be, have been, every bit as bad as our worst imaginings. As Williams implies, today may be worse than ever before. Newsweek reported in 2018 that the persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is, in fact, worse than it's ever been at any point of history. And just last week, the BBC released an article called Christian Persecution is at Near Genocide Levels. The nonprofit Open Doors tracks and reports how Christians throughout the world experience persecution. And according to their CEO, David Curry, uh, persecution, it looks different in every country. And so he says, I believe persecution can be divided into two frameworks. And this is really helpful. The smash, which is violent attacks on Christians, and the squeeze, which is cultures and governments making life difficult for Christians. And so I want us to hold on to these two phrases, because I think they're really helpful for discussing persecution. The smash, which is violent assault against Christians, and the squeeze, which is like an ongoing pressure against Christians through culture or through government. Now, when it comes to the smash, Open Doors reports that every month on the planet Earth, give or take, every month, 255 Christians are killed for their faith. 104 will be abducted. 180 Christian women are raped per month, 66 churches are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial and put in prison. So today, we approach the last beatitude, the blessed persecuted. And this beatitude foreshadows what we've seen throughout history and what we see around the world today. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I must admit, this is a pretty odd Mother's Day passage. But the church is our mother. And just as it's appropriate to talk about people's experiences of pain on Mother's Day, even though it's a day of celebration, it's just as appropriate to talk about how the church is hurting. And this is an odd beatitude. We need to acknowledge that. This all of these Beatitudes so far are painting a vision of a flourishing life, a good life, and now it winds up with persecution. 
And so to get at the heart of this beatitude, how are we blessed persecuted? I want to look at three things this morning. The outcome, the, re, uh, the reason, and the reality. The outcome, the reason, and the reality. So let's, let's begin then with the outcome. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we need to understand is that this is the outcome of a beatitude life. The Beatitudes say we're people of promise. So we're promised the kingdom of heaven. We're promised comfort and inheritance, satisfaction, mercy, and seeing God, adoption into God's family. So should you put your faith in Jesus, should you build your life upon his words, these promises are yours. But when the light of the kingdom of heaven breaks into your life, this is actually what your life will look like. You're going to have an awareness of how you're poor in spirit. There's going to be a hollowness in your innermost being, which makes space and room for the Holy Spirit to come and work in and through your life. You're going to mourn over your sin and the sin of others and how sin has plagued this world. And as you mourn, you start to become meek because you see that you can't even keep all the hairs on your head, let alone change the nature of your soul or the, the, the chaos that we see in the world around us. We can't do it. We need a greater strength. But as you become poor in spirit, as you mourn, as you become meek, there's this hunger that grows for righteousness. And the promise is that you will be satisfied. As you hunger to walk in the ways of Jesus and be more like him, you will be satisfied. And then the Beatitudes start to tell us what this looks like. You'll start to become merciful. As you've received mercy, you become more merciful towards yourself and towards others because you know that we are all fundamentally poor in spirit. And as you're being satisfied by God, you become pure in heart. You start to have a Focus in your ultimate desire that the one thing you ask, the one thing you want is to be with Christ and to become like him. And the outflowing of that is you become a peacemaker, which isn't just being nice. It's being a shalom maker. You are open to the spirit working in and through your life to bring about all of God's goodness and flourishing into the world around us. But now we see that the outcome of this kingdom lifestyle is persecution. And it feels a little weird because you would think what we've just described is exactly what the world needs to see more of. People who are humble and honest about their brokenness and limitations. People who are longing for what is good and right and true. People who aren't on their high horse but are merciful towards others. People who pursue peace and well-being and flourishing for all people in creation. So keeping that in mind, we should first be clear about what this beatitude isn't saying. It does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're objectionable. Or blessed are those who are having a hard time in their Christian life because they're being difficult. Or I really like this one. Blessed are those who are being persecuted as Christians because they're seriously lacking in wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in what they regard as being their testimony. I had to write that down word for word when I read it this week. I really like that. That is not what is blessed. Jesus declares blessed those who are persecuted when they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the sort of persecution Jesus is describing is not suffering because you needlessly broke laws or because your character fell short or because you acted really foolishly and arrogantly and brought it upon yourself. Jesus is not talking about suffering because you've been belligerent or dogmatic about your faith and you went looking for an argument or fight. He's not even talking about being persecuted 
when you're right, but you were wrong in the way you went about being right. What Jesus describes is that we are blessed persecuted when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I want to remind you that in Matthew's gospel and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness is about conduct, about how you live your life. The definition we've been using is a whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. You're righteous when your whole person aligns with God's nature and will and coming kingdom. Or put differently, becoming like Jesus and walking in his ways. And so you're blessed persecuted when the persecution is taking place because your life is looking more like Jesus and you're being faithful to him. Now throughout history, there's so many examples of persecution that we could choose from. But I want to look at one and it's the example of Perpetua and Felicity. And I want to look at this example because it's a very unique one. We actually have Perpetua's prison diary, her firsthand account of being persecuted for her faith. And it's a very rare thing because she lived around 200 AD. And so it's an actual first-person account written by a woman, which is rare in historic text, describing a woman's experience in the early church. Now, Perpetua was newly married. She was a noble woman, so of some wealth, and she was around... 22, a Roman citizen with a nursing child. And she had a slave, Felicity, who happened to be pregnant. And they were both catechumens, so they were training to be baptized. They were being taught about Jesus, instructed in his ways, and moving towards being baptized. But uh, where they were living at the time, there was hostility towards Christians. And so when they were unfound as being catechumens, they were placed on house arrest. But that didn't deter them. They still got baptized. And once they were baptized, they were placed in jail. And in her firsthand account, Perpetua describes the horrific conditions of the jails they were placed in. But the most heart-wrenching thing she writes is this, I was tortured with worry for my baby there. Now, Perpetua's father was not a Christian, and he couldn't understand why she was willing to risk her life for this faith that he thought was foolish. And so he would come and visit her in in prison and beg her to renounce her faith plead with her to renounce her faith, but she wouldn't do it. He said, think about your infant son, but she would not deny Christ because that was what would be required for her freedom. When she was thrown into prison, she was separated from her baby. But some deacons, some clever deacons, bribed some guards to have Perpetua put into a better part of the prison where she could actually have her son with her for a time. Once again on her trial, her father pulled her aside and begged her, please, like, don't go through with this. Renounce your faith. Think of your son. And when the governor asked her, uh, spare the infancy of your boy and offer sacrifice for the well-being of the emperors, she said, I will not do it. And so the governor asked, are you a Christian? And she replied, yes, I'm a Christian. And so the death sentence was passed on her, and that was the last time Perpetua ever saw her son. In the days leading up to the execution, Felicity gave birth in prison. She held her baby for a brief moment and then handed her over to some Christian sisters to never see her child again. And on the day of their execution, Perpetua and Felicity were led into the massive amphitheater. They were beaten by gladiators, tied up, and trampled by wild animals. And as they were mortally wounded, they stood up together, and it's reported by other people who were there, they exchanged the kiss of peace 
before they were beheaded by the sword. It's a tragic story. But it's so much more than that. It's a story about true allegiance. In a time in which allegiance to the empire, allegiance to family meant everything, Perpetua and Felicity placed their allegiance to Christ before any other. In a time in which class lines, especially dividing lines between Roman citizens and their slaves, were rigid and unmoving, this account shows that unity in Christ triumphed over that, that they didn't die as master and slave, but as sisters in Christ. Perpetua and Felicity were devoted to having whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. And they would not deny their faith even when persecution came. The odds are you're not going to face the smash, like many Christians have throughout history, like Perpetua and Felicity, and brothers and sisters throughout the world today. But you might face the squeeze, the constant pressure to compromise and conform to culture that's coupled with ridicule and shame when you refuse to do so. But should you remain faithful to your allegiance to Jesus, that's blessed persecution. It's blessed persecution when it's for righteousness' sake and righteousness' sake alone, not making a point, not just taking a stand, but remaining faithful to Jesus all the way. So having considered the outcome of the beatitude life, I want to talk about the reason for persecution. Why is this the outcome? What is the reason for this? The answer is quite simple. The kingdom of heaven is a threat to to power. The kingdom of heaven is a threat to power. It is a threat to human power and unseen power. It's a threat to human power. We see this throughout the Gospels, that the very leaders, the unique group of Jewish leaders and their institutions, the Sanhedrin, and another group of specific Roman leaders and their tribunals conspired together to have Christ killed. Why? Now, they misunderstood Jesus on many points, but one thing was very clear to them. If this Jesus is who he says to be, if this movement of followers around him really gains steam, it is a threat to our power and status quo. It is a threat to Caesar, says the Pharisees. And in the church, throughout history, when the church is at its best, when people are are truly seeking to walk in the ways of Jesus, the church finds itself at odds with the powers at large. I really like the way William Barclay puts this. Why is the persecution so inevitable? It's inevitable because the church, when it really is the church, is bound to be the conscience of the nation and the conscience of society. And he can say this because we're people who have had a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we're people that are praying that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. We're people who want to walk in the ways of our Savior and Master and Lord and model to the world around us what it looks like when the light of heaven breaks into our darkness. And therefore, if we're truly following Jesus, if we're walking in his footsteps, we'll expose corruption We'll call out greed. We'll confront hypocrisy. We'll enter into different forms of injustice to seek justice. And we see this in the legacy of saints throughout history. You see it in the life of William Wilberforce. You see it in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But when we challenge the powers at large, when we disrupt the systems, when we confront the status quo, quo, it results in persecution. Wilberforce was uh, mocked his whole life. King was executed. But another reason 
that those who are righteous are persecuted is because the kingdom of heaven is a threat to unseen powers. Paul writes to the Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of even uh, of evil in the heavenly places. So we're not just confronting human power, but these unseen powers. And let's admit, when we get to these parts of Scripture, we get real squeamish. And there's kind of two extreme reactions to passages like this. The first is this. You make way too much of it. Like, all you can talk about are the unseen realities and the spiritual attacks and all the warfare you have to gauge in. I, I will never forget, after I preached my third sermon ever, ever so I'm green around, you know, the, what's that turn of phrase? Green around the edge or whatever? I don't know. Heels? Why is, why is it the heels? Ears. Why is it the ears? I've never met a human that's green around the ears. Anyways, I preached this first sermon, and it's just about, like, the woman at the well. You know, normal Bible sermon. And this guy comes up to me afterwards, and he quotes, like, from memory, this passage about the powers in the heavenly places, and he goes, so what do you think about that? I said, I don't, I don't know. What do you think about that? He's like, I think you should talk about that more in your sermon. I said, it wasn't the passage. Why would I talk about that? But that's the other extreme, is that we don't want to talk about it at all. We want to pretend like this is just an archaic worldview, that this isn't really how things operate, that there, yes, is power in the world, but there aren't forces behind that power. And we're nervous because we meet people who seem to be falling into conspiracy theory mindsets. And so both reactions miss it. Both reactions miss it. What scripture wants us to reckon with, what scripture wants us to see is that resistance to the kingdom of heaven is always about power. It is, yes, about human structures and powers, but also behind those powers are unseen spiritual forces resisting the kingdom of God. And should we fail to understand the stage in which our faith is played, we will unravel at the seams because there are powers of resistance against Faith. There are powers of resistance against anyone who wants to pledge their allegiance to Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to know, dramatically so, that the ways of the kingdom of heaven set us apart from earthly kingdoms, set us apart from unseen powers, because we have a spiritual foe who's ready to pounce like a lion and deceive as an angel of light. And so the reason the blessed persecuted suffer for righteousness sake is because their whole lives are aligning with the ways of Jesus in the midst of a contested world, a world where different powers, seen and unseen, oppose the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So having considered the outcome and the reason for persecution, I want to talk about the reality of it. And the question I have for us is what on earth does a passage like this mean for Christians in Vancouver, where we experience peace. And I want to address two strange things about this passage for us. And the first strange thing is this. It's the tension of being Christians within the Western history of the church that is a history of oppression and colonization. That the church has not always been the conscience of the nation. The church isn't blameless and has committed atrocities in the past and even in the present. And this can't be denied, and so we should own it. 
And we shouldn't be afraid to identify the church's failure and call the church to account in light of the ways of Jesus because we're always sinners in need of grace. But please hear me. We cannot swallow wholesale the Western narrative about the church as an oppressive colonizing force. That is part of the story, but is not the whole story. And we cannot let that narrative of the church overshadow the global narrative of the church. The global church is suffering. And she's facing persecution day after day. And so the wrongs of the church, past and present, need to be identified, but they should not overshadow the wrongs being committed against the church right now. But the second strange thing is how to talk about our experience of persecution as Western Christians. Like how do we talk about persecution? We're not at risk of losing our homes or losing our lives. But Christians in the West do experience forms of persecution because of their faith. But in some cases, we're now accused of having the Christian persecution complex. Has anyone heard that term, the Christian persecution complex. In other words, we're accused of being the boy who now cries wolf. Essentially, some Christians bemoan that the Western world is changing around us. It's rapidly de-Christianizing. And so as politics become more secularizing, some Christians feel we're intentionally being put into the outskirts of society. But the problem is that we got too comfortable with power that was never meant to be ours. We got too comfortable thinking that if we just have the power of culture in our quarter, that's one of the same as bringing the kingdom on earth. And that is not one in the same. So yes, the makeup of Western society is changing around us. And we have to consider it case by case. In some instances, it is just how the ebb and flow of history works. It has nothing to do with persecution. But in other instances, sometimes there is persecution bubbling beneath the surface. And so, when it comes to any form of persecution, here's what I want to suggest. We always need to press ourselves and challenge ourselves to speak accurately and without hyperbole. In other words, when we speak about the challenges the church face or we face, we should try to stay away from exaggeration and belittling the word persecution. So when a friend like posts a meme that mocks Christianity on your comments on your Facebook thread, and you're like, why am I being persecuted? No, like you're just being trolled. And like that's like a different category. But on the other hand, just because some of the church ex experience extremes we can't fathom doesn't mean that we should diminish or ignore the persecution that we do experience as Western Christians. We... We don't face the smash, but we do face what is called the squeeze. Once again, the squeeze is cultures and governments making life difficult for Christians. Sometimes it's the government, sometimes it's societal structure, sometimes it's just people, but it's a squeeze against your faith to make living out your faith more difficult. As Jesus goes on to say in verse 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Do you see, Jesus is saying not all persecution is violent and murderous. Some of it is people reviling you and speaking poorly about you. And so when your allegiance to Jesus is 
to a commitment to living in his ways, even if it's costly, sometimes the cost is social. I know people in our community, I have friends, whose families have worked hard to dissuade them of faith, who on their way to getting baptized put up as many barriers as possible to make it as difficult as possible. And I know people who live in the city whose families have disowned them for becoming Christians. And many of you know what it's like to be in a workplace where these socially acceptable caricatures and jokes about Christians are said willy-nilly, and, and it's just expected to be okay. And you know what it's like to be the brunt of a joke time and time again, and yet should you ever make a joke like that about, about a Muslim or any other faith, you would be called a bigot. You know what it's like to experience that tension. And you know, uh, there's a member of our community. She's in my community group. She just came to faith. She just got baptized. And her friends at school found out that she's reading the Bible and she got baptized. And day after day now, they're mocking her in class. Many of you know what it's like to be shamed and ridiculed, whether in the media or even in relationships, for not conforming wholesale to the cultural trends of Vancouver, for not aligning with patterns of culture that are uh, in contradiction to the ways of Scripture. Everything I just said, it's not the smash. Our lives aren't at risk. We're not going to lose our homes. But we do face insult and ridicule. So once again, let's commit to speaking accurately and avoiding hyperbole, acknowledging what we face and not dis dismissing it altogether. And so with that in mind... What does this beatitude mean for us as we live out our faith in Vancouver? For those of us who live in safety and comfort and peace, who don't face the smash of persecution, and the first thing I want you to hear from me is this. If you're not being persecuted in these extreme ways, it doesn't mean something's wrong with your faith. Being persecuted is not a sign of holiness. So it doesn't mean you should go looking for persecution, or be wondering, why aren't I facing all this resistance to my faith? If you're living in a culture of peace, you should celebrate that and be thankful for that. And we should use that privilege to help the church who's being persecuted, who don't share those privileges. But what this passage is, is a reminder to us. Jesus never promises us an easy life. Never. He promises a good life, a flourishing life that will cause persecution in this world because the life he promises us is at contest with this world. And so you don't come to Jesus because you want a carefree, suffering-free, casual ride towards bliss. That is not Christianity. That's self-help. Indigo's down the street. You can go buy those books. You come to Jesus because he's the king of God's kingdom. You come to Jesus because of who he is, not solely because of what he can do for you. You come to Jesus because he's the truth, the way, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but through him. That's why you come to Jesus. Your life might be difficult on the pursuit, but it'll be good, and you will truly flourish. And until Christ returns, until he establishes the kingdom of heaven on earth. He tells us in many places, persecution is part of the package. You're going to face resistance. Some face the smash, others the squeeze. And for those of us in cultures of comfort and peace, 
need to pray. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Some of us get so excited about different social causes and we neglect our own family. We neglect our own family. And so I want to encourage you to look into a couple organizations. Open Doors, Release International, and the Barnabas Fund. Open Doors, Release International, and the Barnabas Fund. For my research, these are organizations that are trustworthy with the finances, that don't exaggerate the facts, uh, and that have good accountability structures in place, and are doing meaningful work around the world to help Christians who are being persecuted. Maybe you can give financially. Maybe you simply get informed. I don't want to tell you what it has to be. But what I want to say is that because we're in a place of privilege, we should try to inconvenience ourselves for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't even have the privilege of gathering in public like this. But we should also not be afraid to pray a prayer that we might find rather uncomfortable. That our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering, that they might know the joy of suffering. And that they might be able to rejoice and be glad when they're persecuted. That's what Jesus goes on to say. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this runs against the Western worldview. You know, we should be praying for liberation. We should be praying for the governments to change. We should pray for oppression to cease. Yes, of course. And we should pray that our brothers and sisters, when they are in fact persecuted and when they take their last breath, are able to praise God because they know their names are written in the book of life and that although the body may die, they will live. This is why the apostle John and Peter, after being beaten, can return to that early group of disciples rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. This is why Paul and Silas, after being in prison for preaching the gospel, can sing hymns while in an awful ancient jail. This is why the first martyr of the church, Stephen, could have a smile on his face even while people were killing him by throwing stones. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last words after being imprisoned and executed by the Nazi regime were this, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. How do you rejoice? How can you be glad when your life is being taken from you unjustly? You rejoice and you're glad because you know your name is written in the book of life. They can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. And just as we share in Christ's suffering, we will share in his risen life. We will be raised from the dead. And so when you're persecuted because your whole person aligns with God's will and nature and coming kingdom. Should you suffer for your faith, the Holy Spirit will empower you to rejoice and be glad. And so I want to encourage you, as a culture where we face the squeeze in different ways, to not bemoan it, to not complain about the glory days of Christendom, to not given to conspiracy theories that the world is going to fall apart around us. Who cares? I want to see the world do well, but if it falls apart, who cares? We're not serving Canada. We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see Canada flourish. We want to see goodness, but the whole government doesn't have to be Christian, doesn't have to have our morals, doesn't have to have all of these things. If it does, great. But if it doesn't, so what? 
Our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him no matter what comes, and to show people what the world can be like when you're under his governance, under his rule, because you will be a more peaceable person when you serve the king of peace. People, if I don't get an amen, I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) Ultimately, here's why we can rejoice and be glad. We're not suffering for Jesus. We're not trying to prove ourselves by being persecuted for him. We're suffering with Jesus, the one who suffered for us to open up the kingdom of heaven for us, to open up the possibility of this beatitude lifestyle, to open up this possibility of becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ suffered for us. We're sharing with him in the suffering what Paul calls the joy of the fellowship of suffering with him. That's why you can rejoice and be glad. You serve the king who suffers with you and for you. Jesus warned us about this. Just before he headed to the cross, he said this to his disciples. I've told you these things, warnings of persecution and danger, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Then he dies the most horrific death fathomable in the ancient world and shows us all just how powerless the powers of humanity are. We think we can shame him out of existence. He rises from the dead. We think these human powers will control the world and fix the world, and Jesus shows us there is only one person with the power to transform this world. He has the power of everlasting life, and he's made a promise that his kingdom will come. And he's shown us just how good and beautiful it is, and that he's worthy of suffering for, because we never have to suffer for him. We only ever have to suffer with him. And we can never match what he suffered to make this possible for us, the full redemption of the cosmos.